Well, good morning. <clears throat> if you have your Bible, I do invite you to turn to uh, the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. We are continuing on in our study. Uh, <clears throat> and so um, while you're flipping there, just a couple things. Luke uh, is at Pine Grove Baptist Church this morning, uh, which is in Ellsville. Uh, so be lifting uh, him up as he's preaching there. Uh, and also, as one of you mentioned, we had mentioned it in the past couple of weeks, but uh, continue to pray for your next point team, uh, the team that uh, has been put together as far as thinking through future plans, buildings, and things like that. And so uh, they've met a few times already, and uh, y'all will be proud of the way they're serving uh, you as they uh, are seeking the Lord's direction as far as uh, the next point for our church. And so I think they meet again in a couple of weeks, and so... Uh, be continue to lift lift them up. If you're a guest with us here this morning, uh, the way that we kind of we walk through on Sunday mornings is a style called expositional preaching. And so, uh, really, what that means is a fancy word uh, for really just saying go into the text and what's the point of like what's the purpose, what's the what's the point in that text. And so. Uh, we're a little different than uh, some churches, and I'm not knocking other churches where, you know, everything's topical. We, we believe that the Word of God is, speaks and is sufficient within itself. Uh, and so what we do is we go to the text, we read it, we pull out what that, what that intent of that, that, that Scripture is. And so uh, this morning, I kind of want to help teach you a little bit how to do that. Something that helps me uh, whenever I'm preparing a sermon, uh, uh, definitely through the book of Acts, is I ask this question. And so if you're a member of Crosspoint, if you're not a member of Crosspoint and you're going, hey, how can I better study scripture? Uh, definitely the book of Acts, a great question to ask to begin is, what would the first person that read this letter that Luke wrote, like what would they get from it? Like what was the intent of it? And so when they read this passage, definitely these verses that we're looking at this morning, if they were about to read that, what, what were things that would be obvious that they saw? Uh, what was Luke's intent in writing that to them? And that's that's what you have to preach. That's what you have to teach. That's what you get from that text. And so, anyway, I want to read Acts chapter 9, verses 10 uh, through 19. And, and here, as I read through it, see if you kind of pull out what are the, the big themes as we walk through this text. Acts chapter 9, beginning of verse 10 says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 13 says, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many uh, I, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Pause for a moment. If you're not familiar with this text and you say, what's going on here? And so last week we were looking at the first nine verses of chapter nine, whenever a guy named Saul, who was a persecutor of the church, had went to the chief priest and gotten really 
uh, he, he developed a hit list, if you will, uh, a list of people who were in the synagogues in Damascus who were a part of the way, and he was headed to there. He was headed to Damascus to go uh, persecute, to arrest the, the people a part of the way, Christians, if you will. And on his way, the Lord stepped in, and we see Saul have this salvation experience on the road to Damascus. And so whenever we ended last week, God had told Saul, go to Damascus and just wait there. And so now we're picking up, and now we see this guy named Ananias, who has no idea any of that was going on, and right? And so now God comes to him and says, hey, go look for this guy named Saul of Tarsus. Uh, he's there, he's praying, and you could understand Ananias' response going, wait, that dude, that's, that's the same guy who came to, to persecute us? Like, and so you see, so just kind of bring you into speed kind of where that comes from. So anyway, verse 15, uh, But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, whom appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 says, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, taking food. He was strengthened. Pray with me. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it is alive and that it speaks to us this morning. So we pray uh, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear that your word is alive this very morning. God, we pray that you be with us. Guide us, do what only you can do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as I read through that text, there are really, really three things that the, the text is kind of laying out for us. Number one, and I hope you've seen it all the way through the back, book of Acts, is that God's at work. That God is, in, in the ordinary affairs, if you will, that God is sovereignly ruling every step man takes. Right, So when we saw it in chapter 8 with Samaria and the Ethiopian eunuch uh, and Philip just randomly being in the desert, like we see God sovereignly working. We see it last week right? as, as Saul was headed to Damascus uh, to do, uh, really to, to carry out his will of persecuting the church, that it wasn't that Saul was you know, thinking about his own morality. He wasn't kind of contemplating. Matter of fact, we understand that the very gospel that he had heard from Stephen and other people really fueled his fire to put it into it. So it wasn't like he was having some kind of faith crisis and then God spoke. It was he was headed to do the very opposite thing that God had called, desired for him to do. And in a moment, God interrupted his life. It was God at work. It wasn't something that Saul was trying to do on his own wit, his own strength, but that God's at work, right? And so now we even see in this guy named Ananias that, that God is orchestrating by speaking and leading to this guy named Ananias to go and to minister to Saul. And at the same time, what did you read? God said, well, don't worry about it because he's had a vision that you're going to be coming, right? So we see God sovereignly at work in all things. We have to be able to see that from the text, that the praise and the honor do not go to, to Saul. They don't go to Ananias. They go to the one who's orchestrating the whole thing, the God of all creation. Amen. All right, so we see that. That's the first thing that we have to derive from that. The second thing, we, I think that as somebody was reading this letter for their first time, say, hey, Saul actually did get saved. Right? Like that has to be a, a deduction from us because what do they know? They know what Ananias knows. This is the guy who has persecuted the church. And so when they're reading, they're saying, oh, God is actually doing, God actually has saved this man who was once so wicked. 
And that's going to be a, a very applicable, applicable for us. The third thing is that we see Ananias' courage and his obedience. So that's how we're going to walk through this text. As I was preparing this this week, and I began to think about Ananias and, man, what a call, right? Like, what? <laughs> hey, go talk to this murderer, right? Like, go talk to this dude. Uh, and then I began thinking, and, you know, for all of us, and when it comes to, maybe I just do that, but like, outside of the Lord Jesus, who, when you get to heaven, who would you like to talk to, right? Like, some of us would, I'd love to talk to Moses and talk about when, like, when the Red, the Red Sea split or... Uh, Joshua with the walls of Jericho falling, or maybe some of you, I would love to talk to Ruth. She was awesome. And uh, you think about, or Lazarus, like what are like conversations you could have with these, you know, these big moments, these big people who walk through scripture, but not a single one of us would have ever said a guy named Ananias. Why? Because we're drawn to the big, like we're drawn to the big heroes of the faith. We're drawn to these big personalities, these big moments and things like that. But what you see in this guy named Ananias is a guy who was open to hear from the Lord and was obedient what the Lord called him to do. And our eyes should be drawn to him because he is a perfect example of simple obedience. So anyway, we're going to navigate through that. If you're taking notes, number one, we're looking at Ananias the disciple. We see him in verse 11. This is a different Ananias that we've previously seen in the book of Acts. And so this is Ananias. And if you read King James Version, and it may say there was a certain disciple named Ananias. And so there was this disciple named Ananias. So we understand not a whole lot about Ananias other than he was a disciple of the Lord. Later on in chapter 22, Paul calls him uh, devout and had a lot of favor among the people. And so we don't know a lot about him other than he was a disciple of Jesus. And so uh, what I want to walk through, and really the first point is looking at different aspects of, uh, of Ananias's life, what makes him a disciple, really characteristics of being a disciple disciple, because that's what we see that he is. First thing that we see in verse 11 uh, is, uh, sorry, verse 10, uh, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. First thing we see about being the disciple or Ananias is that he had an ear that was open to the voice of the Lord. And so Justin, that, what is it? listen to me, what does it mean to be a disciple? is that we have an ear that's open to the voice of the Lord, that we desire to hear from the Lord, that when the Lord speaks, we hear, we, we hear his voice. That's what Jesus teaches in the Gospel of John, that the sheep will know my voice, that a part of being a disciple is that we have an ear for the voice of the Lord. We desire to hear from him. And look how quick it was. It was whenever the Lord said, Ananias immediately said, here I am, Lord. Like he was expecting, he was, he was excited about hearing from God. And that's why this morning, whenever in gospel reach, I felt led for us to just to go to the Lord and say, Lord, we're excited to be here to hear from you today. And we're excited to have the opportunity. We have an ear to hear from you, man. How crazy would church be if we all actually came to church excited to hear from the Lord? Like to, to be excited to sit under the teaching. Listen, I know I'm not the greatest preacher in the world, but the word is good. And it is great to sit under. And a part of being a disciple is that we are excited to sit under the teaching of God's word because through the word is how God speaks. He's open. He has an ear that's open to the word of the Lord. And listen, I know Sundays are crazy. I know Sunday mornings are nuts. I actually can testify that to that. 
But man, how awesome if next Sunday when we come in, no matter what's been going on, that we pause for a moment and say, God, I'm excited to hear you speak through your word this morning. He had an ear that was open for the Lord to speak. He desired to hear from the Lord. And you see a quickness in his response. First of all, we see that Ananias, something about him, he had an ear that heard the Lord. The second thing is they had a will that was obedient to the command of the Lord. He didn't look too obedient. Over there talking back to the Lord, saying, Lord, you must not know who you're talking about. Well, we see in verses 12 through 17 says, so, so God tells Ananias, uh, rise and go to the street called Straight, which is an actual street in Damascus that is still there today. It says, uh, at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, and behold, he is praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Here's verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard. I have heard about this man. Matter of fact, I have heard, I know that he actually has a hit list that, gave, that was given by the high priest for people, for followers of Christ in Damascus. And there's a, we don't know a lot about Ananias. Church history says that Ananias could have been one of the church leaders in uh, Damascus there, they were still meeting in the synagogues. So there's a great chance that this man, whom God is now calling Ananias to go see, right? That Ananias' name was probably on his hit list. Right, so think about that in context. Like, And so you have this Lord, the Lord calling him to go do this. And what we see is a legitimate fear. Some people say it was just stark disobedience or a lack of faith. But I mean, I began to think like, I don't know many people that if all they knew about Saul of Tarsus was that he wanted to kill Christians, and you're absent from the idea that what happened on the road to Damascus, that would be all of our response. Wait, if I go there, that's too risky. That's a death sentence, if you will. And so he processes that. He says that to Christ. It was legitimate. But look how the Lord comforted him. First of all, this is what you said. Luke Johnson texted me this morning. said, isn't it interesting that it was Ananias that brought up Saul's sin, not God, as in God had already forgotten it. Uh, but, but check this out. And so first of all, all he knows about Saul of Tarsus is that he's been killing Christians. So look how the Lord comforts him even within the call to go lay his hands on him. First of all, he tells him that he's going to be praying. Look at the end of verse uh, 11. He says, go to the house of Judas. There's a man named Saul of Tarsus there, and behold, he is praying. And so when you get there, he's going to be praying. So that should be a little bit more encouraging for, for Ananias to go there. Okay, well, all right, God, you say he's praying. That's cool. But then I thought this was funny, and he says, and he can't see. So he ain't going to see you coming. So you can sneak up on him. Uh, and so it's safe to walk in there. And so he's going to be praying. He can't see anything. Uh, but here's what's really awesome. And he says, and he had a vision of a man that he's expecting you. And so he's going to be praying. He can't see, but in a vision, he's waiting for a man with your name that's going to come to him. But look at what he says in verse 15. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. And we see this picture here. How is, so the Lord's calling to Ananias to go back to Saul of Tarsus and and to lay hands on him, to help him regain his sight. And we'll read a little bit, a little bit more what Ananias said to him. And he had a legitimate fear. God, that's too risky. Like he's the guy who would kill Christians, if you will. And then I gives, I mean, God gives him some nugget. He's going to be praying. He can't see, but listen to me. It doesn't matter what he has done. He's my chosen instrument. 
It doesn't matter what, he, what, what his intentions were coming to Damascus. The man he is actually in Damascus is not the man who came or started that journey to Damascus. He's different. He's changed. I have chosen him as my instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and the kings and children of Israel. So we see that he had a, he, he had a will that was obedient even in his uncertainty, even in his, hey, who is this? But God said, no, he's my chosen instrument. I am working in his life, so therefore go to him. Go, he says, go for he is a chosen instrument and he went. Even with uncertainty, what did he have? He had the promise of God that God had chosen Saul, that Saul was not who he was, and he went. He didn't have everything figured out, but he had a command from God to go. And even in his reluctance at first, he still went. He had a will that was obedient to the command of the Lord. God had gone before him that he was in control. The last thing that we see about this disciple named Ananias, not only did he have an ear that was open or a will that was obedient, he had hands that were used in the work of the Lord. We see that in verse 17. It says, so Ananias, he went, he departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you, ha- which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and he was baptized. In chapter 22, not sure if it's gonna come on the screen or not, but verse uh, 16 says this, that, that when he got there and he had told him that, that Ananias looked at Paul or Saul and says, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. So what's, Awesome about Ananias is not only did he have an ear that was open, a will that was obedient, but through his obedience, his willingness to follow the Lord, that God used him in his own ministry, in his ministry. And when he got there, he laid his hands on the or soon to be Apostle Paul, but Saul there. When he laid his hands on him, said the scales and the spirit had come that the his scales, something like scales, literally physical things fell off his eyes so that he regained his sight. And then he baptized. Saul. Man, how cool, right? So like, think about it 2,000 years later, to be the guy who baptized the apostle Paul. Was this just ordinary disciple named Ananias in Damascus. He was a guy who had an ear ready to hear from the Lord. He had a will that was obedient to the Lord's command and God used him to do his work here on this earth. A beautiful picture of just simple servanthood, simple discipleship. That to be a disciple means I've died to myself. I've said no to me and I'm following Jesus. And where he says, where he says to go, I go. What he says to do, I'll do. The second thing that we see in this text is that there's Saul the convert. So we have Ananias the disciple. We see Saul the convert. A little bit about him we understand now. You know, when we got to verse 9, it says he went three days without sight, neither food nor drink. So he went to Damascus. He wasn't eating. He wasn't drinking. He was blind there. Uh, But what we see in verse 11 is that he had been praying. 
So Saul of Tarsus has now spent three days blind, but he's been in communion with his now heavenly father. And he's been praying. Like, and I began thinking this week, like the immediate response to Paul or Saul and his conversion is dependence upon God and through prayer. Like immediately the natural thing for him to do was to pray. Listen to me, in church world, this is just a side note, we've like sophisticated prayer so much that it's lost its just natural, really it's the breathing of the Christian life that we feel like we have this tendency that we have to be able to say all the shuns and the ologies and, and end it with a certain way and, and this, that, and the other. Listen to me, prayer for the believers is naturally for breathing as red when he came out of his mama's womb. That's what prayer is for the believer. Listen to me, some of us may need to unlearn what we've learned about prayer and just begin talking to our heavenly father. Where we find Saul of Tarsus, yes, he had some kind of religious training, but it wasn't in communion with the Father, and he gets saved. And what's he doing for three days? He's just praying. Nobody taught him how to pray to the God of Christianity. Nobody taught him how the right things to say or the right things to do. But for three days, he was blind. He was, he was broken. He, what, he was dependent upon Heavenly Father to carry him. So for three days, he's just praying. Not only was he praying, but he was cared for by the Lord. We see that in verse 12. Could you imagine just darkness, literally blackness? Everything in your life has been changed. What you thought your life was going to sum up to or add up to is now out the window. And for the next three days, you're in utter darkness by yourself. The last thing you've heard from the Lord that we know in record is to go to Damascus. And he did that. For three days, he's not eating. He's not with anyone, if you will. He's in uh, Judas's house in Damascus there. And he's praying. And then the Lord cares for him by telling him, he says in verse 12, and he has seen, speaking of Saul, he has seen a vision name of a man named Ananias who's going to come in and lay hands on him. The Lord administered to Saul saying, listen to me, there's a guy coming. He gave us a picture of this guy named Ananias who's going to come and lay hands on him so that he would regain his sight. I, mean, I don't know if you call this or not, but Saul the convert was praying for three days. He was cared for by the Lord and the Lord's saying, I've got you. Somebody's coming. But he was also immediately included in the family. Did you catch that in verse 17? What does Ananias say to him? Brother Saul. There's two verses earlier he was saying, now this is Saul who's, who's killing everybody. And the very first thing we have recorded that Ananias looks at Saul and says is brother. Man, that says a whole lot about a lot, by the way. That I don't have really time to just run down that road. It says a lot about what God does to the, to the sinner who grafts him into a family. It says a lot about the heart of Ananias who could take the Lord at his word and says, I've redeemed this man so much so he's gonna forget who he was and call him brother. And there's a, there's a whole lot of things going on here that I'm just gonna keep moving. He was included in the family immediately. We see that he was, he was empowered by the spirit, right? So we believe in salvation. I believe that uh, because so far, 
these crazy, like, Holy Spirit falling on people, right? So it was at Pentecost with Jews. Then we saw it in Samaria, right? We saw these non-Jews, if you will, were really the two exclusive moments we've seen so far that like the, the Holy Spirit fell. Well, Paul was the Jew, so he didn't necessarily need like another Pentecost experience. I believe the road to Damascus as because he recognizes his sin, he recognizes Christ the Lord. That's already the work of the Spirit in his life. Here, when it says filled with the Spirit, is that word we've been looking at to be, to be led by, to be under the control of. And what Ananias is saying to him, I've come to lay hands on you so that you can see, but for you to understand what God has called you to do, you're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. To be in, to be in control. Well, Paul, you've been in charge of your life up to this point. Now, the Holy Spirit's going to be in charge for what God has called you to do. He was empowered. Knowing that, he was commissioned by the Lord. We see in verse 15, whenever, so we have to believe that this is, there's some things that fill, that, that we have to fill in the blank, right? So God didn't, in scripture, we don't see God telling Ananias that he had met Paul on the road to Damascus. But when Ananias gets to Damascus, he says, the God who met you on the road sent me. So there's things that we fill in the blank, right? And so we understand that there are things probably that Ananias and the Lord conversed about and vice versa. Uh, and so we see this commissioning. And so in verse 15, we see that the commission that Ananias told, of, told about Saul or God told Ananias about Saul is that he was the chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. If you were to flip over back over to chapter 22, Verses 14 and 15, this is what Ananias said to Saul. And then he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, and you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Then if you continue flipping to chapter 26, verse 17 and 18, this is commission. God gives to Saul, it says, in delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from the darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they must receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So whenever Saul, we see Saul the convert, not only, uh, not only was he fasting and praying, he was cared for, he was included in the family. The Spirit's power was not going to rest upon him, but God had given him a new purpose. That purpose was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm thankful for yes. Judas's house and a guy named Ananias who was faithful to the Lord and went to a guy named Saul and said, hey, Saul, this is what the Lord is calling you to do, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Matter of fact, if you go back to Acts 9, verse 15, one thing that I love, so we've talked about you know, Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. That's kind of the breakdown, the outline of the book of Acts. This commission in 15, where it says, you'll be my instrument of mine to carry your my name before the Gentiles, the kings, the children. That's kind of the outline of Paul, the rest of Paul's life as well. He's gonna do this, and, he, and at the end of his life, he's gonna be before kings where he's sharing the gospel. Uh, and so we see even here, we kind of really know what the rest of the book of Acts is gonna look like. The gospel is still gonna be going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, but it's going to be on the back of a guy named Paul who's taking it to the ends of the earth, and it's going to bring you before kings. So there's your outline for the, for the rest of the book. Somebody asked me the other day, what, what are we studying next? I said, well, we've got at least two more years in the book of Acts. I don't know where we're going after that. 
And so we'll get there and we'll begin to say, oh yeah, this is what God told Saul through Ananias all the way back in chapter nine, that he's gonna be in front of kings. He's gonna be his witness. Anyway, let's keep moving. He was commissioned by the Lord. Isn't it crazy? And he says this, that verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Isn't it interesting here that the one who is causing Christians to suffer is going to be the one who's called to suffer for the name of Christ. And what we'll see through the book of Acts is that this guy named Saul, had a, who would become Paul, had many, many sufferings. And here, Ananias, that's not really like, the, the first call sounded good, right? You're going, to be my, you're going to be my messenger to the Gentiles. You're going to be in front of kings. But also, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name's sake. Not quite that appealing. I'll circle back to that in a little bit. But what we eventually see in Philippians 3 is that Paul considered the gift of, the, the, of suffering with Christ as a gift. He said, I, I want to take what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. The last thing we see about Saul the convert is that he was baptized in obedience. Verse 18, it says, and immediately something like scales from his eyes, fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. We see that the fruit, and so this was the big one, right? This is identification here. Saul, who was once known as what we saw Ananias know him as, has now been redeemed. He's been commissioned. He's been set apart for the work of being apostle of Christ to the Gentiles. And now publicly, whenever Ananias says, what are you waiting for? He says, I'm not. He goes and gets, gets in a baptism pool and is baptized, confessing his new relationship in Christ, confessing what I once believed was a lie, and I've now accepted this as truth. Remarkable thing. So what are the gospel truths here? The gospel truths number three is that this picture of blindness to sight is a metaphor of what we see of salvation all through scripture. Say, so Justin, when I got saved, I literally, there wasn't like scales that fell from my eyes. No, not physically, but figuratively, yes. In 2 Corinthians chapter four, verses four through six, Scripture says this, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why can people who hear the gospel not trust in Jesus as the savior of their sin? It's because the enemy has blinded them for seeing Jesus for who he really is. That's all of us. We're born blind. Verse five, for we proclaim, well, we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. But here's what's the good, this is what happens in salvation. Verse six, for God who said, let light shine out of a darkness has shone in our hearts to give light to the, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. This picture that we see in Acts nine of this blindness to sight is the picture of salvation where God opens our eyes to see Christ for who he is and, and believe in him. The second gospel truth is that baptism is a step of obedience following salvation. <clears throat> he, he was saved, he was commissioned, and what did he, he was baptized. He was, he was immersed there with Ananias. And this is just a quick plug. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've placed your faith in Christ, you've become a new creation, yet you have not followed him in obedience to, in baptism, then 
ultimately you're walking in disobedience because Christ himself has called us to believe and be baptized. Why, why is that a big deal? Because it is our public profession of, of my old way of life is done with. Now I am uh, I'm a disciple of Christ. My life is given to Christ. So I would beseech you if you haven't been baptized to walk in obedience. And here's the big ones. Maybe you've seen this. When God saves us, first he gives us a new identity. The gospel truth that we see from this text is that whenever we get saved, we get a new identity. We're not who we once were. It's not just with a fresh start. It isn't, I just get a do-over. No, we get a new identity. So much so in Paul's case, it goes so extreme. Or Saul's case, he gets, he's going to get a new name completely. But for you, child of God, this is a beautiful picture. Whenever God saves you, he gives you a new identity. It's not, it's not what you once were. Scripture says you're a new creation, that old things have passed, and behold, all things become new. That your life is not the sum of your mistakes anymore, that your life is now defined by who Christ says you are, and it is redeemed, it is his, it is set apart. That when we get born again, that God gives us a new identity, that Saul of Tarsus, listen to me, he headed to Damascus with one thing on his mind. He arrived in Damascus as a follower of Jesus. And that was his new identity, his new identity that he was going to be sent to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He was going to be sent to actually to further the gospel he was trying to extinguish. And I'm thankful for even in Ananias' reluctancy at first that he trusted that God had done what God had said and he went and talked to him. It's something that Paul's going to deal with for the next couple chapters. Can people trust him? Is this who he is? And I wrote this down as don't let the labels of your past define who you are today in Christ. Right? All of us have some type of label that defined us BC in our life. BC means before Christ in your life, before salvation. Right? We all have that label, that thing that when we think about even now, you maybe you've been saved for years, but you still go, gosh, I can't believe I was that person. You were, but you're not anymore. By the grace of God, Paul will later say in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians that I am what I am by the grace of God. That yes, I, I was a terrible human being, but God. Then we, somebody should be able to testify that I'm not who I once was. Why? Because in salvation, God has given me a new identity. We see it in Paul very clearly in the scripture. Not only that, second thing, you get a new family. In salvation, he, he God takes strangers who are sinful strangers, depraved strangers, and makes them brothers and sisters. Which means that relationship's going to be tough at times. I'm going to upset you. You're going to upset me. We're going to have words and this, that, and the other. But what brings us together is way greater than anything that could divide us. And whenever we get saved, listen to me, this same guy, it's the power of the gospel. Ananias was so worried. Saul's going to kill me. But the first thing he says is, brother Saul. Like, you have to see that. Like, 
He, he believed in the gospel enough to understand that Saul was no longer his adversary, but he was his brother. So what is it? I mean, there's a lot of application to that, but hey, if, there, if you're sitting under the sound of my voice and there's something that's been dividing you between your brother or sister, definitely here as a, as a covenant member of Crosspoint, go take care of that. I stop letting drama, I don't know of any, but stop letting things that try to divide us, let's just squash that stuff. If there was anybody, listen to me, <laughs> I don't think any of us could say, hey, I've been killing Christians. That would be a pretty dividing thing. No, but you, don't, you didn't hear what they said about me or how they looked at me or didn't look at me. Let's squash that. Amen. Like, let's just, let's move, saying, hey, because of salvation, I have a family that is not, not connected by having everything in common and walking in rainbows and unicorns and sunshines with sunflowers everywhere. But by the blood of Christ, we've been made one. And it is worth that unity. Matter of fact, later on, Paul will write, be eager to maintain the spirit of unity. As in the spirit has already unified us, but we better be eager to maintain it. Why? Because we're broken people that are going to get upset at one another. Kill that junk. Keep moving. When God saves us, he gives us a new identity, he gives us a new family, he gives us a new purpose. He's going to be my, he's my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. All of us are chosen instruments for the Lord's work. No, we're not all called to be the Apostle Paul, but every one of us who name the name of Jesus have been set apart for his work and his ministry. Not just a pastor, not just if you can play an instrument, if you're a child of God, you've been set apart as a chosen instrument for the Lord's work here on earth. A new sight. We got new identity, new family, new purpose, new sight where now Paul can see clearly, literally, physically he can see, but now when God saves us, we see him differently. We see life differently. We see things with perspective. Lastly, there's a new power that now, now for the child of God, we, don't, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit in salvation, and now what Christ has called us to do, we don't do in our own strength. We got a new power I wrote this down right before church started. Another gospel truth that we have to see from this text. It's not going to come up on the screen, so don't be mad at me. But verse, six, verse 16, God tells Ananias, he's going to show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of his name. I wrote this down, the following Jesus isn't always a path of comfort and ease. That's a gospel truth that we need to be reminded of. And if ever you're a part of a church or listening to something that, how can I say this, that your struggles in life is a direct result, with some of them, I'm going to put an asterisk by this, but your struggles in life or your misfortune in life is due to a lack of faithfulness on your part, get away from that. Like if somebody presents it in a way, oh, God's allowing that to happen to you because you haven't been faithful to him. But if you had enough faith, then you wouldn't have to deal with all that stuff. Like 
get away from that junk. Because the, the following, following Christ isn't all, listen, he told us all, listen, you're going to suffer a lot. So any type of prosperity idea of a gospel that you, you name it, claim it, following Jesus is all easy. And if at any moment it doesn't come easy, then there's something wrong with you. That couldn't be further from the truth. Because here's this guy named Saul, and God says, listen to me, you're going to do some great things for me, but your life is going to be filled with much suffering. And for some of us, you can relate to that. Uh, you, the old preacher used to say, rather, rather you just came out of something, you're in something, you're about to go into something. We all walk through struggles, and not for a moment do I ever want you to ever feel or hear the enemy when he whispers in your ear, oh, that's because of such and such because you don't believe in Jesus. Now, this is the Asher moment. There are consequences of our dumb decisions. I'm going to step out of that for a moment. Like if you, if, you, if you make dumb decisions all the time, then you're going to have dumb consequences. I'm saying stuff like you got cancer and somebody tells you because you don't have enough faith. Or listen to me. So-and-so leaves you. Sometimes that's a direct result of like, decisions we made, and sometimes that's the sinfulness of somebody else. Yeah. Oh, well, I, 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 I'm not doubting you believe Jesus and you love him. But sometimes bad things happen because we live in a fallen world. It's not a direct result of my lack of faith. Some of it is. Misfortune isn't directed at my faithful or faithfulness or faithlessness. Everybody with me on that? I feel like somebody just needed to be encouraged by that this morning because maybe you feel like I could have done something better or I should have done that. And we live in a broken world. There's sin, death all around us. But that's why the hope of eternity is so much sweeter because there will be a day that he'll wipe away every tear. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. That's a great thing to look forward to, but until then, there's still sin all around us. Okay, what's the application of this text? <clears throat> Number one, trust in the Lord Jesus today as Savior. If you have never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, I'm hoping that you see that God is at work all around. We see it in this text, but even here, you're not here by accident. That God is drawing you to place your faith in Christ Jesus. Second application is this. Do not consider anyone too far out of the reach of grace. There's somebody probably in your life that you think of Grace can't reach them. Like you know in principle that grace can, but practically you operate in a way that they're too far gone. And I can say that because I deal with that. And I, I, get, I get paid to preach this. Nobody's too far gone, but practically the way that we pray for that person and live towards that person, practically we live as if they're too far for grace to reach them. Saul had to be that for the early church. Had to be. 
I said it last week, if you were to ever ask Saul before Acts chapter nine, would he ever believe in the Lord Jesus? He would have said, absolutely not. I will live the rest of my life trying to kill that message. If you were to ask the church, they probably would have said, there's no way he's too hell bent on getting his mission to distinguish in us. He's never gonna trust in Jesus. But what we see in this text is that nobody's too far outside of God's saving hand to reach. So if there's somebody in your life, whether they've, maybe it's, you know, in our humanity is justifiable. If there's somebody in your life who you just kind of like, not intentionally, but unintentionally, kind of push them off so they're too far gone, I pray that God will work that, that callousness out of your heart and my heart. This is, sorry, this is pastor moment. Like that is an unhealthy place for all of our hearts to be. So what do we do? We pray for the one who might seem to be. We start there. Here's what I've learned about praying for that person. The prayer may not always change them, but it's always gonna change us. Whenever I have hatred towards somebody in my heart, or unforgiveness in my heart, and I begin just praying for that person, it may not always change them, but the more I pray for them, the more God changes my heart in regards to that person. So we pray. We pray for that one who, who's hard to love, who maybe you've tried over and over again. Nobody's too far gone. We ask for the Lord to work. The four things we ask the Lord to open our hearts to hear his voice and to lay our wills down to his. I think it's a practical application from this text is that we, we pray for those people. We ask the Lord, hey God, I'll open my heart to hear from you and give me faith to, to being obedient. And simply this week, take simple steps of obedience. This is probably just an ordinary day for Ananias. They say he may have been a leader or a teacher in the synagogue. He may have been going to the synagogue just on his normal day and God intervenes and says, hey, do this. I don't completely understand it, but all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk on over to the street called Straight to Damascus. Right? We are tempted to chase the Super Bowl. Whenever most of our life is lived in two days. But we're gonna wake up tomorrow. We're gonna pray for the Lord to speak to us and to guide us. And decision by decision, we're gonna walk in obedience to the Spirit's leadership. And God may lead us to a house in Damascus on a street called Straight to a guy named Saul. Or he may lead us back to work again on Monday. Who wants to go there on Monday? But God in his sovereignty may lead our steps to get in our car like we do every Monday, to drive to work like we do every Monday because there's somebody there who needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we don't know if they're the Ethiopian that's in a chariot driving down a road in the middle of a desert who God's drawing to himself and they just need you to show up to work on Monday with a smile on your face saying, hey, I'm happy to be here. Do you know Jesus? Or we're about to get up, we're about to go to school on Monday. What do we do? We just 
Step by step, we're in little moments of obedience and what we understand as we're obeying what God is calling us to do through the leadership of the Spirit, that God's at work all around us. Man, we've seen it in Acts 8 and 9, unbelievably. And I, I, I'd like to think that the God of Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9 is the God of 2022, who still desires to save, who still desires to redeem. And His intents and His purposes and His plans is to use us to get that message out. Do you believe he's the God, same God? That's a real question. Do you believe that he is the same God? You can answer out loud. Do you believe he is the same God? Then we walk each day submitted to his voice and obedience to him step by step, moment by moment. And he's going to place people, opportunities around us. We don't have to, like I said, we don't have to chase the Super Bowl. We don't have to chase the, the persecutor turned preacher. We could think about the kid who sits in our classroom every week or the person who sits in the office next to me. What's God doing in their life or trying to do? And how can I be of service to Him? He will lead us always if we're open to hear and willing to submit. Father, we love you, God. We thank you for your love for us. God, I'm excited about where we are in Acts chapter nine as we begin to see this shift of this gospel explosion through the ministry of Paul. <laughs> but God, you're, you're still the God who saves today, God. You're the God who redeems today and speaks today. So God, we pray now we trust that you're speaking, that you're guiding. God, for the one in here this very day who maybe is a Saul who would say, I would never believe today you're calling them to. Maybe there's somebody in here who has trusted in you but has yet to follow you in baptism. God, maybe there's some deep hurt, some things going on in our hearts that, that we just need to allow you to, to soften. So Holy Spirit, we ask you now to lead us, to enable us to be obedient to that which will please our Father. Have your way. It's in Christ's name. Amen. If you need me, I'll be standing in the back. Uh, if you need to pray, need to talk, I'll be back in the back. If you feel more comfortable talking to a female, uh, then we can connect you with somebody. But let's stand. The band's going to lead us. Take this time to think through whatever the Lord was speaking to you this morning. <laughs>